Welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight interesting, successful, and normal people who happen to be dads. My guest today is Aaron Bronstetter. Aaron's one of the most influential and well-known reporters in the sport of MMA, or mixed martial arts. We spent the first 15 minutes talking about current events in MMA and his relationship with the president of the UFC. Now, if you aren't interested in MMA, do not skip the episode. Start out around 15 or 16 minutes in and listen to an in-depth profile on the childhood, career, hobbies, and mentors of this father of three. He talks about his approach to parenting and lessons learned as a husband and father. He's a super nice guy, and he has a killer story about persistence and investing in yourself. Enjoy. Aaron, thanks for being here, man. Hey, happy to be on with you, Sean. Yeah, so uh, tell me about your Twitter description. It says, kindness is free, be kind and feel good. Where did that come from? It came from my brain. I mean, I, I just, I see so much negativity all the time on uh, that particular social media platform that, I don't know, I just wanted to put a positive message out there as part of my bio. I added it actually probably in the last couple of weeks, but um I just get I get a lot of negative messages and I I just think to myself like it's so much easier for people to be negative that if if people would just do one positive thing a day I, I think it would really help change their lives and right now we're in a time where we're just overwhelmed with negativity um you know we're in the middle of a global pandemic where you know everybody seems to disagree on what to do and you know everybody kind of has their own opinions about it and all of that but it seems like People get very uptight about it, about things, and people are just kind of on edge all the time right now because we're not living the lives we're accustomed to living. I think like we're starting to get a little bit more used to it, but I think a lot of people are uh, having some difficulty during this time. And there have been some people where they send me a message where it's just really there's a lot of vitriol. I'll send them a private message and say, "Hey, is everything okay?" You know, like I I, I wonder if they're having you know issues in their own life and they're they're kind of projecting, but. You know, and sometimes they'll get back to me, sometimes they won't. You know, sometimes they'll write something angry to me. But, you know, I, I, I just feel like if you can reach out to somebody and help them out, that's a better and more valuable use of time than trying to get into, like, you know, a, a flame war with them on, on Twitter. Yeah. So, man, I love that. I love what you do there. Even saying, you know, hey, is everything okay? You know, just just kind of popping your head up, take a deep breath and be like, look, man, there's more important things than whatever, you know, topic X, Y, Z that everyone's so pissed about. Like, are you okay? Like, you know, can I, you know, I don't know, tough to help someone over Twitter, but at least I think even approaching it in that way, maybe help other, hopefully it helps other people like slow down and, and say, yeah, you know, what what's the typical response? You said you hear back from some of them and some you don't. Yeah, sometimes sometimes they won't respond, or sometimes they'll write something you know nasty afterwards, and I'll just block them. Uh, yeah, because you know I'm, I'm, I did my best. <laughs> and yeah. Then, well, I mean, I used to just mute people if I if I didn't like the way they were speaking to me, I would just mute them. Um, but somebody made a good point to me that if I block them, then other people won't have to see their negativity. They won't respond to what, I, what I'm saying with more negative things, and that will kind of just kind of disappear into the ether, which which mm -hmm. I think is is valid. Uh, yeah. it, it's kind of a balance because when you block somebody, if, if they're looking for a negative res response, you're giving it to them and you're kind of feeding into that. Whereas if you mute them, they're kind of yelling at a wall. And I kind of like that. But um, 
then on the flip side, it's the other thing that I said to you, where people can just kind of see what they're saying. Um, right. you know, some people have said, like, listen, sorry, you know, I respect you. I'm, I'm not trying to be rude. There have, been, there have been those kind of responses. And I think that that kind of helps them you know, take take a step back and, and think about, you know, how right. they should, you know, write to other human beings. Because that's what we are. I mean, at, at the end of the day, on, on a computer, we're a bunch of text. But behind the text, there's somebody there that's reading something that, and is being affected by it one way or another. Either they're saying, well, I don't care what this person has to say, or they're saying, well, that's, you know, hurtful, or, you know, everybody's got a different reaction to different things. And I try to yeah. just remember that also, that there's, there that text is also being transmitted from another person. And I don't know what, how, they, maybe they had the worst day ever. Maybe, like, they found out their grandfather was ill or something, you know? Mm -hmm. You just never know what someone's going through on a day-to-day -day basis. you you got to be empathetic in that way. Yeah, uh, that's admirable of you. Well, thank you. It, <laughs> In a recent interview with Dana White, who's the owner of the or one of the owners of the UFC, and he's the what the uh, CEO, president. I guess, yeah. yeah, president. You asked him a, a great question that I want to turn around and ask you as well. And that question was, if you could only watch one of the currently scheduled fights, which one would he watch? Because there's several, so many good ones that have been uh, long anticipated that are on the calendar right now. But if you could only watch one. Um, I want to ask you, well, if you could just choose one, which one would it be? I knew he would tap dance around this answer because he's a promoter and he wants to make sure that everybody is excited about up and coming fights. But I have an, e I think it's an easy answer. I think it's, uh, Khabib versus Justin Gaethje. I, like, I don't yeah. think that there's really a close second for me. I'm, I'm so excited to see what happens in that fight because Gaethje's, he's got good wrestling chops and I think Khabib will take him down. I think he'll take him down and hold him down for some time. But I also think that if Gaethje can keep it on the feet for just a little bit with the kind of power he's shown, with the kind of patience he's shown. I think that anything can really happen when you're fighting Justin Gaethje. He's, he's that good. Um, and the style, you know, they say styles makes, make fights. And I think this is a, a, I think that's why people wanted to see the Ferguson fight so much is because they knew that if Khabib took him down, that Ferguson would have a lot from off his back. And that's why I always exactly. say like, this fight doesn't make any sense to book, but I would love to see Charles Oliveira versus Khabib. To Charles me too, Oliveira. man. Yeah. He never gets any of the credit he should get. He's so good. And he would do like, he'd be like, go ahead, take me down, Khabib. I would love to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that stylistically it's an interesting matchup. I mean, again, I don't think I'm up, you know, trying to, trying to advocate for it. I just think that I would love to see it from that standpoint. I think that that's one thing that people are always failing to look at with MMA is like, you know, people say, oh, this guy, well, this guy beat, is, has won six in a row and this guy, uh, you know, is on a two fight losing streak none of it really matters. I mean, you, you can say that maybe they're not as good as they used to be, but the person that lost two in a row could have also had bad stylistic matchups, and they were a really good stylistic matchup against the person that's won six in a row. I mean, look at, actually, a, a case like that just kind of came uh, out recently with um, uh, Ahmedov versus Weidman. Like, Weidman is going through a really bad period of his career, and Ahmedov's won six in a row. But, like, who did Ahmedov win six in a row against, and who did Weidman lose three, two, three in a row to? Like, exactly. you're talking about Reyes, you're talking... Um, who else is on Some that? Killers, he's, yeah. He, he's just killers. He, he, yeah, basically, why they just fight to the best of the best guys? And Achmedov's beating guys that are good, but that that are beatable. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm I'm with you though. I think that uh, I'm super excited about Habib versus uh, Gaith G. That could go. Who knows where it goes? But um, anything can happen. You know, Gaith G is incredible. Mm -hmm. I love Gaith. Um. I like also how you asked recently on Twitter, win or lose, is Stipe the greatest heavyweight of all time? And um, 
I, w- I think going back to last week when we didn't know what was going to happen with Steve Air DC, I think uh, it's a good good argument to be made, even if he had lost that fight, that Stipe, uh, greatest of all time, when you look at the total body of work. But naturally, uh, we know what happened, and, and I'd say it now. There's no no question that he's greatest. But um, any anything you wanted to add on to that? Well, I just thought that this narrative was being pushed that, the, oh, the winner of this fight is the best heavyweight of all time. Um, and first off, I mean, that kind of disregards Fedor, who I think won 31 fights in a row at heavyweight. And at heavyweight, that's incredibly impressive. That being said, I think there's a lot of uh, questions about pride and whether it was above board. Uh, so I, th- I feel like you kind of have to you have to make it two different conversations. You have to say best in UFC history, and then you can do best in history. And if you want to bring Fedor into that conversation, feel free. Fedor's six and five when he fights in the U.S. I mean, people are, are you know very complimentary of him in, in that win streak, and I think it's a great win streak. And he was beating really he was beating killers. He's being no the no you know uh, Nogueras of the world, um, just beating some of the best the best guys. But I think that if you look at it just from a UFC standpoint, that even if Stipe would have lost to Cormier, he still had a better heavyweight resume than Cormier had. And I, th- I think you still have to give the guy his due. He has the the all-time record for the most title defenses, um, consecutive title defenses and title defenses, period. Uh, now, after that win over Cormier, he still has that win over Cormier that you can't take away from him. So you can't be like, well, Cormier beat him twice and Stipe never beat him. Stipe did beat him. Um, and then you look at the win over Francis Ngannou, which not, nobody has done in the UFC. Uh, and, and at that time, again, it was like a two-to-one favorite over Stipe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you got to remember that Stipe's beaten Verdum. He's beaten Overeem. He's beaten the best of the best guys at heavyweight, whereas Cormier, and this isn't his fault, Cormier's most of Cormier's best work was done at light heavyweight. So I think if Cormier yeah. wins that fight, you say, well, now you got to put Cormier in the discussion for top five all time. But... Uh, I still don't think he would have been the best UFC heavyweight of all time. Mm. Agreed. As an MMA reporter, uh, you see a lot of the sport, a lot more than the average fan does. You see the the sport, the or the promotion, the athletes. Um, what have you learned as a top me- uh, member of the media that you wish like the average fan knew about MMA? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... I mean, the things that you see behind the scenes, like I'm, I'm, everybody says, oh, what was it like to be in the, re- the arena? It's like, well, I am in the arena, but I'm in the back watching it on a TV. Like I'm still watching it the same way as the people at home. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm never at the tables at the front. I, you know, I have been for a handful of fights when I, when I specifically ask if it's like, a, especially if it's a fight in Canada, you know, they're more than happy to, to like let me sit out there just to be out there. Um, and I know Okamoto goes out there sometimes, even though he doesn't necessarily need to be, although he, he is filing for ESPN. But um, I, I just think that people, don't understand how small these guys are. <laughs> that's that's what I think. If when you're next to these individuals, like on TV, they're so large, so larger than life. Like they're they're doing things that none of us would even imagine doing. Um, you know, going out in a cage in front of thousands of people and trying to survive in a life or death situation, pretty much. I mean, that's that's essentially what an MMA fight is. It's like you need to be well equipped or you're going to die. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to. Put it that way, but if you're not a, if you're not trained much or you're you're not um, at the highest level, like there are there are dire consequences to losing a mixed martial arts fight. Um, but when uh, when you see them in person, it's it's amazing how small they are for the most part. I mean, heavyweights are still big. I mean, you see like Stefan Struve or Francis Ngannou, and they're gigantic. But sure. like if if you were to stand next to like Joanna or uh, T.J. Dillashaw. Or Henry Cejudo, Henry Cejudo in particular is like five, he's like five foot two or five foot three. Like the, the, when you see what these people are able to do in the cage, it's like it's mind blowing 
when you stand next to them and you see that they're just like they're just regular folks. Like and people in the UFC don't stand out, I imagine, when they're walking around. Like I'm sure Henry Cejudo can walk around wherever he's at and maybe get recognized by a handful of people. Um, but if you're like an NBA player, if you're like six foot eight, even if you're like the twelfth man on a team, like people look at you and they're like, "You play basketball, probably." I mean, the, I think the I saw in Sports Illustrated once. I think the percentage of people that are over seven feet tall in the U.S. that make it to the NBA is like thirty four percent or something like that. So, like, wow. if you see, like, a seven-footer walking around, there's a good chance that he is or has been in the NBA, right? Like, you've got a one-in-three chance that they, they played in the L, right? So, uh, <laughs> I, I just think that when you look at a lot of these mixed martial artists, it, it would really blow you away at, at just how small they are. Yeah, that's interesting. I wasn't expecting that answer. That's a good one. Um, based on... Uh that interview that you had with, with Dana White recently, um, it sounds like you two get along pretty well. Uh, and that's Dana typically, he notoriously kind of hates the media, especially MMA media. He's always like talking about how bad they are in, in as a group. But, uh, is that, is it something you're doing differently in your relationship with him? Or is it more of like, he hates the media in general, but he gets along with the top, you know, five or 10 key players. Well, he subsequently did an interview with Barstool where he said he wanted to choke me sometimes. Uh, <laughs> That's crazy because he was like totally cool with you. Yeah, him and I have kind of a hot and cold relationship. And I think it's just how he feels that day. But I, I just will never stop pushing him. Like that's, you know, I, I don't know. There are sometimes he doesn't like questions that I ask. And sometimes he he does enjoy doing interviews with me. I It's weird. Sometimes he says to me sometimes, you know, I, I never he, he never has any regulations on what I ask him. Like nobody ever says to me, don't ask Dana this. Mm. So I take that to me and like, maybe he wants to be challenged. He likes, he likes going, he likes sparring with people. Right. So I don't mind sparring with him every now and then um, when it comes to interviews. And sometimes I think he doesn't like it. And sometimes he does like it. I think it just depends on the day, but I love interviewing Dana. Like my, that's, it's my favorite part of this job is interviewing Dana because I find it so challenging. Um, he like, you need to know when to, when it's okay to follow up with him because you can find out when he's going to give you an answer just by seeing how he responds to the first question, like the first answer, when you'll know when it's okay to ask a follow-up. Um, it, it's a, it's an art to interview him. Honestly, it really is because you need to, you need to know how to ask a question. Like I can ask you, I could have said, Hey, uh, which fights are you looking forward to by the end of the year? But if I say name, just one fight you're looking forward to to the end of the year, that's a better way to phrase that question because then you have to really challenge him. And I think he likes to be challenged in interviews. Um, so I, I just, I just love interviewing the guy. I, I, I tell everybody that he's my absolute favorite interview subject because I just find it such a challenge to, to, to get him to um, answer questions a certain way. Like I, I don't want to interview him the same way as everybody else. I think that he's um, a really unique individual who will will give you good insight if you ask him questions the right way and you push him on things um and i i hope he appreciates that i don't know if he does but uh yeah i i, I like dana a lot I, I love i love spending time with him um when i'm interviewing him um and the the rare moments where him and i kind of are chatting you know off camera or to the side or whatever and um you know when i went to go visit his office i got the i got the tour of his office and he showed me all the cool stuff in his office and uh uh, you know, 
that kind of stuff I, I really like. But, you know, there are some times where I walk away from an interview with Dana where I'm like, wow, you know, I hope he's not pissed off at me. But and sometimes and a lot of the time he is in those circumstances. But I just get, I just get a real joy out of uh, out of speaking with him. Yeah, well, I mean, kudos to you. You do a tremendous job of of uh, approaching it from a different angle than than the average reporter. And and you do get great results out of it. So I've uh, I'd say from being a, a very rookie, very novice interviewer uh, with a podcast, I can I have an, a greater appreciation for the art of interviewing. And, and it is a art and a science and, and you're great at it. So uh, well, thank you. you. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. So let's get to know you a little bit more personally. Uh, tell me a little about where you grew up. What type of kid were you in your you know, childhood and teenage years? What were your hobbies and interests? I grew up about 30 minutes outside of Toronto. Um, my life was pretty normal. Like I, I had a very good uh, structured household. Uh, my parents are still together. Um, and, you know, they really, they really um, instilled in me the value of hard work. You know, my mom uh, owned a store when I was younger and then, I moved on to be a, the CFO of a company. She, like yourself, has an MBA. Um, and uh, my dad uh, worked at an auto body shop. So it was like very different uh, juxtapositions between what each of them did. So my dad was, you know, doing a lot of manual labor, and whereas my mom was doing more, uh, you know, business-oriented things. And my dad ran the business, right? So my dad also was involved in, in the business end of things. But uh, just watching their work ethic and seeing, you know, that they came home uh, later than a lot of other parents and, you uh, seeing you know how how savvy they were in the world of business really rubbed off on me um and uh, i i grew up with two younger sisters but yeah pretty pretty normal upbringing um i was really into music i'm still really am into music um have about 500 records that i i have here in my uh in my uh my my office here um do do you turn on the record player and listen yeah, I listen to a lot of music when I'm when I'm uh, doing work because it, it helps me think. It helps m- my creativity and my and my flow. Um, yeah. So I listen to a lot of music. Um, and I grew up, you know, uh, had a tight knit group of friends who I'm still f- friends with to this day. Um, you know, played video games and you know listened to a lot of music. Went to a ton of concerts. Uh, so that was kind of my early years. That's that's how I spent a lot of my time. Cool. Uh, you mentioned growing up outside Toronto. I've heard great things about toronto um for the average american who might be listening who isn't maybe as familiar with toronto tell us a little about it and and why have those uh who've been there said such good things about it yeah there's nowhere i'd rather be living than toronto um this this is home for me and i hope it's always home for me um i just it's it's a great city very diverse city uh very friendly city very clean city for the most part, <laughs> sometimes it's not, sometimes it is. Uh, and I just think that it's a place where, you know, you can raise a family and uh, I mean, the, the cost of living here is starting to get quite high. The The average house price I think now is like around $900,000 or something like that for, uh, for uh, a house in Toronto. So it's not a cheap city to live in, no. but uh, it's a great city. Um, I wish the weather was nicer in the winter, but you know, lots of good record stores, which is nice. Uh, cool. that's where I, that's, that's where I frequent. That's where I spend my, uh, my, any disposable income I might have. But, uh, I live, I still live about 30 minutes outside of the city. I live in a part of the city called Scarborough, uh, near, near one of the great lakes, Lake Ontario. Um, yeah. and, uh, whenever I want to get into the city, I jump on a train and I'm, I'm there in about 30 minutes. So, uh, I, I just love it here. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. That's great. Good to have a spot that you really strongly identify with. 
So you mentioned your dad worked in the body shop and also ran the the business. Um, tell me a little about uh, his parenting style. Like what what's one thing that he really nailed as a father? Who my father? Your father. Yep. Um. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just uh, dealing with dealing with my wife with something. Someone's at the door. Obviously, I don't know if you heard the dog, but uh, oh, good. Uh, taken care of. Uh, so uh, yeah, my dad. Um, he was. Uh, he was. A, a very you know very easy going for the most part but uh he would if, if you ever did thing uh if i like ever misbehaved he made a face he made like a face that uh, where i knew it was time to like you know chill out yeah. <laughs> that's all he had to do was he had to make like a, a, a like this kind of stern face and i would you know back right off but uh yeah he was he was really easy going he uh loved to take us places take us to the baseball game or um you know, when I was a kid, I, I always had a bunch of hobbies. I used to collect sports cards and comics, and he was always happy to feed into that and take me to, you know, whether it's a baseball card show or anything along those lines. Um, but yeah, he was not not a whole lot um, to say about about him, um, other than again a great work ethic that he instilled in me. He was always uh, able to fix things. If I ever got into any trouble, I could call him. He was very approachable and and understanding. I mean, his teenagers were, were wilder than my teenagers, so I think he, he kind of got it in that sense. If there was ever any any trouble I had to get into, you know, that I got into or if I was in a bind that, he, that I knew he would help me out. Uh, so, yeah, just a really good two-way relationship. Uh, still very close to my dad. Uh, we just moved into a, a new house uh, over the last couple months, and he was really helpful in helping us, you know, get all of that together and renovate. And he has experience in real estate, and um, awesome. he's very handy. So... He's just uh he's just one of those guys that's just always a phone call away if you need anything and uh that's that's just so valuable to have in a parent. Totally. Yeah, imagine how many millions or even, you know, billions of people out there wish they could describe their dad like that. That's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'm very lucky in that sense. Yeah. So, uh getting into your career, I would have to say um uh, looking at your career history, I would assume that you always wanted to be a broadcaster. Is that true? And um you know, it seems like you've always been in in media. Is that is that always been an interest from the get-go? Well, yeah, since I was a kid, I always wanted to be um in media. I I, I used to do my own radio shows at home. I would like re- get a tape recorder and record into them. Um, but, uh, I started to go down the business path, uh, well, you know, when I was going from high school to university, my mom really thought that I would be good in, in the business world and tried to push me in that direction. So, um, I said to her, well, I don't want to take, you know, business administration because I, I, I'm really passionate about media and, and journalism. And I, I'm thinking of going in that direction, but, you know, uh, I'm also thinking of doing entrepreneurship down the line, opening a store or opening a business of some sort. So I said, why don't I take a business communications course? There was a course called business communications. So you would learn about communications and business simultaneously. You would learn about film and pop culture. You'd learn about media and you'd learn about, um, you know, all of, all of the business end of things. You'd learn about like entrepreneurial studies, business ethics, um, marketing, all of that. So I kind of, I did that and I thought it was great because it helped me determine which way I wanted to go into. And it's funny, even when I finished um, my undergraduate in university and I was going on to graduate, I was, I had applied for journalism and I had also applied for copywriting. So I still was on the fence about what I wanted to do. Um, even after university where I had been calling basketball games, I'd been doing radio shows. I'd been writing for the paper. Um, the shirt I'm wearing right now, CFBU, that's the radio station for Brock university where I used to be the music director. I still have the shirt. Um, oh, cool. Uh, coinc- coincidentally wearing it right now. But, uh, 
yeah. So even then I was still like thinking, you know, maybe I want to get into marketing. And then I did a, uh, an internship, a summer internship at a, um, I guess it's a marketing firm. Like they did copywriting and they did, uh, um, yeah, like the marketing end of things. And I was so bored there and I just saw, um, how everybody worked there and what, what they were doing. And, and I just said, this isn't for me. Um, I, I took that summer there and I, I realized that, uh, I didn't want to be doing that. So that's when I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to go into journalism and the rest is history really. That's awesome. Now I see you've been uh, working in MMA for a long time. Did that originate as a fan of MMA and you kind of married your uh, hobby with your work or did it start out as maybe an assignment to cover MMA and then you just really got into it deep? So I started off uh, my career. My first full-time job was at a radio station uh, for Sirius XM radio. Uh, it was called Hardcore Sports Radio. And uh, I produced uh, a late night radio show. That was uh, the host name was Gabriel Morenci, who's still doing media right now. He's working for Sports Grid. And I think he still has a show on Sirius XM radio. And um, that show was from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. or whenever he felt like stopping the show after this. Sometimes it would go to 3 a.m. <laughs> he would just go as long as he, he felt he needed to. So I would get home at like sometimes 3.30, 4 a.m., but um, he was really into MMA, and uh, I didn't know much about it at the time. This was probably back in like 2005 or six. Um, and uh, you know, I really got my introduction to the sport then, and I just fell in love with it. Like I wanted to do basketball. Basketball is where I wanted to, uh, what I wanted to cover and what I wanted to do. And uh, even when I was working for that channel, I was hosting a basketball show. Um, I wanted to do like I wanted to do NBA draft type stuff. Like I wanted to kind of specialize in NBA prospects. Um, that's why when you told me you were from Raleigh, I was like, oh, did you go to Duke? Because I, I know, you know, I know about the Carolinas. And I know about all of the different colleges there. Or at least I did. You know, I've 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 really focused on MMA. Like the amount, the little, the amount that I know about basketball right now compared to what I knew say five six years ago is like minuscule. Like I used yeah. to know every roster. I used to know you know, where everybody was drafted, what college they went to or what country they were from, like everything. And uh, because I've put all that energy into MMA, like I've, I've, I've lost so much about basketball. And now when I watch basketball, it's just a completely different sport now than it was five years ago too. Like the, the so pace, different. yeah, the way people are shooting. I always watch and I go, if that guy would have taken that shot six years ago, he would have been benched for the game. Like, like, <laughs> where, like not passing it, shooting off the dribble from like nine feet behind the three point or whatever, you know, like three or four feet behind the free, the three point line or yeah. whatever, six feet, like close to half court and just throwing up a shot. I, I said, if that happened like six, seven years ago, that guy would be benched and wouldn't come back into the game. Yeah. And now it's just like, true. it's commonplace. But, um, I, uh, I really wanted to go into basketball and then I just started to get really into mixed martial arts and made that you know, my, my, my passion, I just started studying it. I started going to classes. I started, um, watching, um, watching every weekend. I started watching inside MMA on HD net. I would record that every week so I could see what was going on, like in, in the regional scene and worldwide, I would watch, I'd stay up and watch dream. Like I, <laughs> I was really, um, uh, engulfed in it and because like when I, when I start liking something, I get really, I go down the rabbit hole. Like I really, um, study it and i really um try to learn as much as i can about it so that's um yeah that's that's where where i was at back then i just really put everything i could into learning about it um and and, and following it and uh then i just basically when i worked at tsn i was i was doing like most of my media career has been producing 
It's been behind the scenes. It's been booking guests. It's been um, radio producing, television producing. Um, I, and I worked on a show called Off the Record with Michael Landsberg, and I was booking guests for for him. And I booked a lot of MMA guests on his show. Um, and then that show um, ceased production, and I uh, then was just working strictly on booking guests for TSN as a whole, bringing in guests to do um, the rounds at our studio, uh, media tours, that kind of thing. And then we got the rights to the UFC, and this was at the time where like it was like McGregor, Rousey, um, Lesnar was coming back. Like it was everything was really big, and we oh, weren't yeah. really se- we weren't really sending anybody. We weren't covering it as well as we could have. So I spoke to my VP, who uh, I'm pretty close with, and uh, I said, you know, we need to start sending somebody to these events. We need to start sending, you know. And I wasn't lobbying for myself. I was saying like maybe we can send this guy. He watches it every now and then, um, and eventually. Uh, my VP said, well, you know more about the sport than anybody in this building. I have faith in you that you could cover the sport. And I think you should be like, he made me the editor of UFC content. So um, that's kind of how I got my start. That's it was about, awesome. about three years ago. Yeah. So uh, I haven't been covering what did that feel that like when? What did that feel like when he tells you that? I just was ready to jump in with two feet. Like I, I, I had no expectations of it happening. And when it did, I just was, I was over the moon. Like it's a dream job for me. I'm, I'm. Like I wake up counting my blessings every single day that I have this job. It's my I've said to my wife, like there's no other job I'd rather have than this. Like if 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 I was offered another job, I just I can't think of one that I would rather have than this job. And like it's and I'm not I'm not being disingenuous when I say that. I'm being 100 percent honest that like working for this company, living in this city and having this job is like it just does not get better than this. It's it's awesome. That's good, man. I I was reading something recently where it was saying that uh, gratitude's the key to happiness, you know. And it's like you've got you're grateful for your job, your location, and uh, you know you got so much going for you. It's like recognizing that those blessings can really make you feel so happy. You you can get into that happiness that's available through the gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course a great family, which is like yeah. paramount to to happiness as well. Is just having having that support system around you, and uh, yeah, it's it's just awesome. I again, I've just you're you're right. It's just gratitude. That's all it is. It's like I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity. I'm grateful for having such a uh, a beautiful family and where I live and everything. That's awesome. Hey, I'm curious uh, as as someone who's you know relatively recently gone into MMA. I, I started doing uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu a little over a year ago. I'd love to hear your experience doing. Uh, you said you're taking classes. Like which uh, which martial arts were you uh, or are you um, practicing? And what was it like getting started? And and kind of where are you at now? Yeah, I was taking more striking oriented um, martial arts. I, I wasn't doing any real any wrestling or, or grappling. It was strictly mostly kickboxing for the most part, and okay. uh, I uh, I just kind of fell off once we had our third kid. I just didn't have the time. I was going to night classes. I was going to classes at nine p.m. and uh, I just couldn't leave my wife at home to get three kids to sleep. Like I, <laughs> I, 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 good luck, honey. I'll was, be back in was, a couple it was, hours. <laughs> it was bad for my marriage. I'll just, I'll just put it that way. But um, I got a lot of experience. I did it for a couple of years, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, I I still have my you know my century bag down here, and you know I'll. I'll that's how I'll exercise is I'll, I'll just keep doing, you know, working on the skills that I've learned. And my co-host for my, uh, my podcast is Bazooka Joe Valtellini, who was a glory, uh, welterweight champion. And, uh, if you haven't gone to his channel on YouTube, it's basically just instructional kickboxing. Like it's, oh, he teaches really? you all kinds of technique and it's totally free. 
and I would I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. So when I have spare time, I watch his videos and I, I just kind of try to polish the tools that I have and work on it from home because I just, I can't, I don't have the time to uh, go. And maybe when things open up a little bit more, I can bug Joe and go to his gym in the afternoon sometime and, and do some yeah. stuff there. Um, but uh, yeah, do, going at night, unfortunately, like if they had classes, at, <laughs> if they had classes at like 11 PM, I would, I would still go, I'd go and I'd, I'd go for an hour and I'd come home. But uh, 9 PM, it's like, all my kids fall asleep now at like 9.50, 9.30. And I just can't, I can't leave my wife to uh, yeah. do that. My oldest doesn't. My oldest goes to bed at like 11, 11.30 now. Uh, yeah, he's nine. He goes to bed at 11.30. He's always up with us. And uh, during this pandemic, we'd let it, we've let him watch some, some shows that are probably uh, for a bit of an older <laughs> audience. But he's loving it. He, I've never seen anybody laugh as hard as he did when we watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like he, he was keeled over on the floor, clenching his stomach watching that show. Uh, that was pretty funny. So, at, at the very least, we're teaching him, you know, a, a good uh, a good sense of humor and irreverence. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's. Um, I like how with MMA, it's one you can be a fan of. You can be, you know, it's your your work, but it's also something that, as a hobby, you can participate in it, and that also informs you, you know, your work life. So you can, you know, you're more much more educated having been through similar experiences. So that's really cool. For sure. And I also have really good resources like with Joe and with Robin Black, like two two people who I've competed at. Um, it's good for me to be able to pick their brain and say, hey, what happened there? And they, they will walk me through um, mm. how certain things happen. What was the name of the, um, I think it was Joe, the Bazooka or something we can go yeah. check out? Yeah, Bazooka Joe Valtellini. I think Joseph Valtellini on YouTube. If you look up Joseph Valtellini, okay. it's just basically all he does every week, he puts out a new instructional video on technique and uh it's really really helpful if you're wanting to learn at home and and don't have time to get out to a gym yeah i'm getting my kids i want them to do some kickboxing so that'd be we perfect. watch this channel get get a i don't know if you have a century bag or something but get get a bag and watch this channel cool so tell me a little about your mentors um how did you get connected with them and in what ways have they been helpful for you well, outside of my parents, um, my mentors in this industry have been uh, well Gabriel Morenci, who I, I was a producer under. Just watching his work ethic was um, really impressive. He, he was he was like a savant. I'd be sitting at my desk and he'd be on the desk behind me and he had like a stack of paper and a marker and he would just be scribbling his notes like he ha he'd have like 20, 30 pages of notes um, going into a, a show, just handwritten kind of chicken scratch. But he would... He would just sit at a computer and read and read and read and find all the interesting stories of the day. Um, and uh, my, my, I'd say my biggest mentor in this industry has been Michael Landsberg. Um, he hosted a show here in Canada called Off the Record, which was like a, a, a sports talk show, but it lasted like 17 seasons, I think. Like it, it lasted for a long time. It was, I think, it predates um, like around the horn. It, it, it's it was around oh. for a long, long time, and it was essentially. Originally, it was a panel show. It would be him as the host, and then there would be four panalists, and you'd, and you'd be um, he'd, he'd throw out subjects, and the panelists would range from like local chefs to like just people that had an interest in sports to athletes to um, journalists, everything. Um, but watching him work on a day to day basis and uh, watching what he was able to do and and his ability to to react on the fly, his ability to ask questions, the research he put into every single show was like it, there was nothing better for my career than to be around him and he was also so 
positive to be around and, and so nice to everybody. Uh, such a kind person. It, it, you'd see his on-air persona was very, like, brash and in your mm. face. And behind the scenes, like, he was just so, so kind to everybody and so understanding of everything and just uh, just an unbelievable person to be around. So I, I, I got a lot of value from being around Michael. And it also helped me because, you know, when you're a reporter um, and you do interviews, it's always, like, I've, I found that there's a real structure to it. And I don't like to follow that structure. I like to do it differently. And um, I think Michael's interview style was helped me strike a balance between that kind of an interview style and um, the um, the interview style that a lot of reporters kind of have as a common thing. And I try to kind of find... And Ariel's great at that, too. Ariel um, injects a lot of personality into his interviews. And I think that that's a really good style to have. It's, it's a lot uh, more interesting than just a, a typical interview yeah true so what advice would you give to a smart driven college student who's interested in journalism media production sports broadcasting any advice you'd give and and maybe any advice you'd recommend that they ignore well i meet with a lot of students because i find that if a student emails me and says hey i'd love to meet with you that's the kind of person that's going to do well in media because they are not afraid to reach out to somebody who um, whose work that they admire, you know, like it's it's very difficult to hit send on an email when you have the um, knowledge that you could be rejected and not get a response or someone could say no. And as somebody who booked guests for years and years and years, um, I always shot for the stars, like the, the amount of guests that I was able to book for off the record and the caliber of guests still amazes me to this day that we were able to get cer- certain people on that show. Um, but uh, we... You know, whenever whenever I meet with a student and they say, you know, like, what, how how can I do this? Or, you know, like I'm in school right now, I'm taking classes. I always say to them, I go, how much does it cost? How much is your course annually? Like, how much how much does it cost? And whatever whatever the range is, usually it's in the ten thousand dollars, whatever could be more. Um, I know in the U.S. it's a lot more uh, per year. And I say to them, are you how much of that would you be willing to invest in yourself? Like, if if you're investing that much in your education and you're investing in yourself, would you be willing to Invest invest 10% of that in yourself. And they go, well, yeah, sure. Go out on Amazon, get a tripod, get a microphone, get a, get something that allows you to plug your iPhone into your microphone. Use Get a, get a good iPhone. Like, I mean, if you have an iPhone 5 upgrade, get like an iPhone 8, iPhone 10, whatever. And you just go out and do be a journalist. Like you have all the resources in front of you to do... Like, if you watch my interviews from when I'm on location, those are shot on an iPhone. Like, I don't have a camera operator. I set it up. I set up the camera. I frame it on my Apple Watch. I don't have a camera, man. I do it all. That's awesome. I'm a one-man show. And because I'm able to do that, that is what allows me to go and cover so many events because the overhead of sending a camera operator, of sending, you know, like... Having that, yeah, Yeah. there's there's like very little equipment to bring, you know, that kind of innovation is what anybody can do in this industry right now, because the technology is so good. I remember when I was uh, just getting into this, and I was probably still in university, I went to Radio Shack and bought a little box where you could record phone conversations, so I could record interviews into my computer. And like, that technology to me was great at the time. And now the, the amount of things you can do so easily, it gives everybody who is willing to innovate a leg up. 
So if you're willing to go out and invest in yourself and just go out and report on stories, go on, go on like go on, follow news wires, follow. And just if you, there's a story that happened, if there's a car accident, go and go and talk to a police officer, go down and, and interview them or ask if you can have a moment of their time, record a conversation with them. Just pretend that it's your job because there's nothing, there's no substitute for uh, going out and doing it. Like it's the same thing in MMA. You know, a lot of the fighters say, um, well, I, you know, look at Joanne Calderwood, who just took a fight with Jennifer Maya. She said, and she ended up losing that fight and subsequently likely losing a title opportunity. But she yep. said to me beforehand, like, there's no substitute for real in-cage experience. And I, if I was going to take a year off before I fought Valentina Shevchenko, I'd be doing myself a disservice because I don't want to go in rusty. So she wanted to take another fight so that she would be able to polish her skills and, and be more equipped to beat Valentina Shevchenko. And now it didn't work out for her. But it's an important mindset to have where there's just, you know, you can practice at home. And I think you should practice at home. You should look in a mirror. You should watch yourself uh, talk. You should talk out loud. You should pretend to do interviews. And another thing you can do is just reach out. Like, if you want to cover MMA, if you reach out to uh, a low-level UFC fighter through Facebook Messenger or through Twitter and you say, hey, I'd love to interview you, the worst thing that can happen is they don't get back to you or they say no. Yeah. And, and I guarantee you that if you ask 10 of them, one of them will say yes. So if you want to get because they want to get experience doing interviews, it's important for them to do interviews because that's part of the job, too. And if they're truly independent contractors, they need to promote themselves. So if they say something that ends up making news, um, you know, these are these are the kind of things that will um, help propel their careers. So they're more than willing to do interviews. It's the people that are willing to, to put themselves out there that are always going to do better in media. And that, that's the advice that I would give them. I know that's kind of long-winded, but I think it's really, I'm really passionate about that. I think that it's something that a lot of people don't think about. They think they're going to go to school and they're going to get a job in journalism. And it's just, that's not how it works. Like, you have to put in a lot of work. I worked for free for, for years. A lot of people work for free for years before they get a job in media. And then that job is a part-time job where they're getting 10, 20 hours a week at barely scraping by in life, right? Like it's not easy to make it in media. It isn't. And you need to put yourself out there. You need to stand out above the rest of the people. Um, and there's a funny story from when I w was in college that I tell sometimes. I, uh, I was in a class with a, it was a reporting class. And the guy who, the, the professor, or the teacher in this, in this particular course was the biggest hard ass you'd ever meet. Like he was, he was an old school beat guy who yeah. like, he made people cry. He would he would take their work and he would rip it to shreds. And I I saw a guy cry in that class, like a grown man, cry wow. because this guy was was ripping his uh, his pieces to shreds. And we did um we did a uh, an exercise where we went out our uh, our college had an arboretum like a like a garden area that had like ponds and stuff because I guess yeah. they had like a, a botany course or something. So we went out there and he and we he brought us out to a pond and he goes a car just drove into that pond. I'm a police officer. Ask questions. Like ask me some questions. So, you know, I asked some questions. I took my my uh, my jeans and I rolled them up and I walked into the pond and I started taking pictures with an invisible camera. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm taking pictures. It's the car in the pond. I want to get, get a good shot. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And then I found out that the next year when he did that assignment, he said to the class, why is nobody getting into the pond and taking pictures? <laughs> so I had made an impression on this guy who was the hardest professor to impress at, at this college wow. by just putting myself out there right like and, and that's how you make impressions on people 
I, I also did an interview when I uh, when I was at Humber that one of the instructors, I think she's since she's recently retired, but up until her retirement, she used to give um, it was an 18 minute interview. She used to give the class this 18 minute interview to cut down to four minutes. It was an interview with a guy who sold synthetic dog testicles to uh, so that when people's dogs got neutered, they would not feel emasculated. This was the guy's business. And wow. I did like I did like a, an interview with him that was totally like straight faced about his business. And but it's like it's a ludicrous business. But I did it in like a very serious like fashion where I was doing like a profile piece on this guy. And she That's loved tough. this interview. But like that's just the way you you're able to stand out. And when I was like when I was writing for the paper at at the college, I did an interview with the lead singer of Supertramp. Like I, I just reached out to his publicist. He was coming to town to do a show, and they were all very impressed that I was able to like, to do all of these these things and uh, and just was able to to stand out. And that's really what it's all about. Is like don't don't become one of the the flock. Like just be be someone who stands out and and that uh, you know a professor would be willing to stick their neck out for you to get a good job in this industry i really like that that advice because i think that's too often people undervalue the importance of hustling you know just getting out and getting after it it's like it's an amazing time to be alive where anyone uh you know most people have access to the tools to to enable you know whatever career you want to go for just go get it go go get started somehow. It's not going to be pretty when you begin. You know, that's like my thought. Like, I don't know anything about podcasting or interviewing, but I was like, if I'm ever going to do it, I might as well just start and it's going to be rough, you know, when I get started. But it's, um, I don't know, just trying to get out there because there's so many opportunities. It's a great time to be alive. Mm -hmm. Well, you reached out to me and I'm sure that you, when you did so, you probably thought, well, this guy might say no or he might not respond to me, right? And and, and that's uh, a very human, emotional response to have to something like that because you're you're putting yourself out there you're sticking your neck out right and uh rejection is hard believe me yeah. like it's i've i've gotten when i first started doing radio booking like guest booking like i you know i had to take it on the chin many times where people would say no and i would and instead of taking that as a no i would follow up with them two weeks later follow up i'd, I'd set a reminder i'd say you know follow up with so and so follow up with so and so and eventually it would came, it would come through it took me uh, over a year to book certain guests for for Amazing. shows yeah and it was just about every two weeks you know respond you know follow up follow up follow up follow up and uh eventually it would come through that's awesome i booked your yeah, president yeah. once i booked your president for an interview before he was president wow that's impressive for, for uh for off the record that's that's really incredible it took me a yeah. year it took me well it took me six months for that one but like you know that's the kind of work you need to put in it's like you know if somebody says no You've got you've got to show them that you really want this interview, right? Like, if if you just say no, if if they say no and you don't ever follow up on it, or if you follow up in a year, they're not going to remember your name. You need to make it so they remember your name, and you also need to text them. You need to get in their face, right? Like, yeah, if you know they don't know for an answer, and that's an important mantra to have in life. You know, it's how do you do it, that with with some of the more um famous people who have insulated themselves wisely from the all the people out there who have a megaphone and and they either have someone else managing their profile i mean you're going on linkedin facebook twitter just reaching out any way you can is that how you 100 percent. find as many avenues as you can um and and try to exhaust all of them like okay. that's that's really the best advice I could give in that regard. But you also need to be careful, right? Like you don't want to step on people. You don't want to step on anyone's toes. Like you don't want to email someone who 
um, you know, where you're going over someone's head or you're like, you, you do need to manage relationships. That's very important as well. Um, right. So that's a big part of it too. And, and um, it's good to strike up relationships with people that, that are in that position because then they can help get you more interviews down the line. Yeah, for sure. It's good because it applies to, you know, sales is, uh, is essentially sales, what we're doing, you know, prospecting in a, in a sense. And that applies to every every job you have. Like you need to sell somebody on something, you know, for sure. Whether it's buying a product or accepting a meeting or whatever. So cool. Um, let's go. I'm going to ask you a couple questions that I stole from Tim Ferriss and we'll start off with uh, an easy one. So uh, what's a purchase of $100 or less that you've made in the last six months or year that's most positively impacted your life? I'm sure I have a really good answer for this, but one not coming to mind immediately. Um, hmm, let me look around. What do I have here? I'm trying to think of what... I'm sure there's a great answer, honestly. I just can't think of one off the top of my head. Uh, I just bought a robo-vacuum, but that cost more than 100 bucks. Uh, and I'm thinking and I'm, about getting one of those. Do you like it so far? I've used it twice, so I'm, I'm not the right person to ask. I'll, okay. I'll just be honest with you. I'm not the right person to ask, but uh, let me get back to you. Let me think about that. It's, cool. It'll come to me at some point during this interview, and I'll, I'll just pop it up during another question. Deal. All right. Little little deeper question. Uh, tell me about a failure or significant obstacle that you've been through that set you up for later success. Oh, there have been lots of them. I mean, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of failures in my career, and I, I think that's important, though. It's really important to uh, to have failures in your career. Uh, there, but there have been a lot of shows that I've produced that have gotten canceled. Like I think that uh, that um, I had to get accustomed to that. You know, when I was working in radio, particularly, like shows get canceled all the time, and you get shifted around. Um, and it's important not to take it personally. Like I was, I was producing a show when I was at that radio station where I just thought the host didn't know anything. Like I, I thought that they they were really faking it, and you could tell they were faking it. And I just was miserable. I used to drive home. Every night it was another late night show. It was not. It was the the show that I produced after the one that I was talking about before with Gabriel Morenci. Um, and every night at two thirty a.m. I would stop at a twenty four hour Tim Hortons and get a donut with sprinkles on it to eat on my way home so I could feel better about myself. Um, so that was probably a bad time. Like that was about a year of my life where like I just I I, I felt like no matter what I did, I wasn't able to make something good. So that that was like a year of failure pretty much. Where like I was having successes with booking guests and everything, but like I felt that uh, the show never got any traction. People could tell that it wasn't very good, and uh, there was nothing I could really do about that. And that that felt like a real failure to me. But I just kept my head up and kept trucking through it, and eventually moved on to something different. Um, so and, and that's probably and the how best did answer. that yeah. impact you uh, in the? How was that um, a positive impact down the road as a result of that failure? Well, it was more just being resilient, right? Like not not walking away from the job because I wasn't having fun, um, not um, not giving up on myself, not yeah. taking not taking not blaming myself for it, like not realizing that it wasn't really in my control. Like I and, and being able to kind of let go in that way, um, because while I was associated with the show, I knew that like in order for a show to work perfectly, like everything kind of needs to click into place properly. And one, even if one little thing is off, it can it can throw off the whole. Getting good guests is important, but if the host is no good, then it's gonna die. So right, so I I knew I was doing my part, right? So I I it helped me real realize that not everything I do is gonna be is gonna be great, and not everything I do um is going to uh resonate with people. 
So, you know, it, it's important to like failure is so important. Like it's it's I, I tell people this all the time. Like if you don't fail in your career, you're failing <laughs> because you're not getting you're not going to be able to improve how you do things if you don't fail. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you could be very good at something, but in order to be great or excellent at something, I feel like you need to experience failures along the way. And again, like every time I there have been times where I've tried to book guests for years and years and years and it never came through. Like I tried to book an interview with Drake for three or four years. I think it eventually did come through through one avenue. Uh, but but yeah, like just trying to book different guests for years and years and years and it never coming through is it's um, it's good. It's good that it doesn't come through sometimes. Right. Because you just keep trying and you keep being persistent. But it's still a failure. Like if I don't get that guest to me, that was still a failure. Right. So I, I think that it's important to to go through those kind of things in order to uh, to grow your career and to grow uh, grow just as a human. Right. Like, yeah, it's, it's important. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? The last five years. Um, well, I think that uh, doing doing being more researched and more prepared for interviews has been has gone a long way because there are times where I'm not as prepared. But but the on the flip side of that, I think that it's really I, I've stopped writing questions for most of my interviews. Like most of my interviews, I I, I just kind of go off off of memory. And I feel like that's helped with the flow of conversation a lot more. Um, sometimes I kill myself afterwards for not remembering a question. Like not, rem- I was like, oh, I really wanted to ask them that. And and sometimes I'll just I'll have a piece of paper in front of me with just like individual words, like you know, WEC training training in Denver, whatever, just to yeah. refresh my memory. But I find that that's helped me a lot is is not being so robotic with my interviews and trying to really um, just go off of what I know because. I'm working all the time. Like that's the thing. I'm always doing research. I'm always working. I'm always reading up on things. I like I know my subject matter, right? So if I get too prepared with too many, you know, too many questions, and I and I want to follow a script, it's never going to be as good as it is when it's just a more real conversation. Sure, that's that's really good. Good advice for anyone out there. Family, uh, moving on to this topic, tell me a little about your family and what's one thing you feel like you're nailing as a parent? Wow, that's a, that's a tough question in terms of what I'm nailing as a parent because I feel like I can always do better. Um, well, so what was the first part of the question? So just a little overview of your family. Okay. And, yeah. Uh, today's actually my anniversary. I've been married for 13 years today. Congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. And uh, we have three kids. My oldest is nine, and I've got a four-year-old, and I've got uh, uh, a girl who's turning one in October. So, uh, oh, sorry, turning two. 11, sorry, turning right? two in October. My oldest is nine. My oldest nine? is nine. Oh, He's turning ten nine. in October. Nine. And then um, okay. I've got a four-year-old, and then my daughter's turning two in October. So I've got. You know what? I was thinking of when you were saying earlier that your oldest stays up late, and I was thinking of my oldest and staying up late. And that's sorry, I got mixed up on the numbers there. But um, your oldest is what? Eleven. He's about to be, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a great age. Um, something that I'm nailing as a parent. Uh, I know well, it's I'm, an awkward I'm, I'm, question. Everyone pauses there. <laughs> well, well here's, 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 it's going to be kind of an interesting uh, answer because it's more what I'm doing well as a husband that's kind of being parlayed into what I'm doing as a parent. So um, 
I get up with the kids every morning and let my wife sleep in. I let her sleep in usually till nine or 10 before I start my work day. And uh, I feel like that allows my kids to get the best out of her. Mm -hmm. um, I get to spend my time, like my downtime is the morning and then when I'm done working. So about six o'clock, um, that's when I'll, I'll go back upstairs and, uh, and, you know, spend time with everybody. I mean, I'm working from home now. I used to work at, at an office, obviously, before this pandemic hit. But um, I feel like spending as much time with them in the morning, like kind of alone time with them where my wife is sleeping, it gives it allows both of us as parents to maximize our time with with the kids because um, she's getting to sleep in, which will give her more energy during the day um, as opposed to getting up early every morning. And then um, our, our youngest is still getting up in the night sometimes. Uh, actually, our two youngest are both sometimes getting up in the night. Um, and my four-year-old will always go to her and wake her up. So interrupted sleep, I know, is like is like a demon. It's if you get if you get too much uh, interrupted sleep over the course of time, you like you break down. And my wife's had times where she's like gotten really worn down. Um, I can totally relate to that, by the way. Yeah. So I, I feel like by getting up early with the kids and and kind of shaping their day and getting their day off to a uh, we get on we get off to a very light start. Like I, you know, we'll, we'll watch a TV show, we'll have breakfast. It's like nothing too uh fancy you know and i'll take my dog out for a walk with my with my daughter and get get outside and get exercise like that's important too but um i just feel like getting their day started and and allowing my wife to to sleep in a little bit helps keep the the family dynamic going in a positive fashion that's really valuable i think that's a good a good thing to do um I feel <laughs> embarrassed to say lately, both my wife and I are trying to sleep in in the mornings. We get the older kids to don't like be embarrassed the, about that at all. The, my my nine year old did that for our anniversary this morning. He uh, he woke up with with both of the younger kids and spent time with them for as long as he could before they freaked out, which is like about an hour and a half. But an hour and a half is good. I'll That's take an hour good. and a half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially since we had yeah. such a terrible night last night. Our our daughter went to bed earlier than she normally would because uh, she woke up. You know, the sleep cycle gets messed up sometimes. So she was yep. up with us for like, she was up with my wife from like, I don't know, about one till three. Oof. So, yeah. So the extra two hours was good. It helped. It helped both of us for sure. Good. Good for you, man. Yeah. So my son, my son bailed us out this morning. Thankfully, it was our anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. In what ways would you say that you've chosen to parent differently than you were parented as a child? Um, I'm home a lot more. You know, it's a lot more hands-on. I had nannies growing up. Like, I had uh, uh, housekeepers or whatever. Um, because my parents both worked long hours. Uh, my wife stays at home. Um, she's a stay-at-home mom. Um, and uh, she'll, she'll go back to work probably once our youngest is uh going to school but uh and she, she's even thinking of doing some part-time stuff now but um just just having more time with my kids you know like both her and i getting as much bonding time with them as possible is is very different from my upbringing like it's that's super um i feel like it's super important to their to how they grow up as people and uh i don't think that you know my, per se, my, you know, my parents instilled a lot of really good values in me and a lot of good, um, uh, like, again, a good work ethic. And uh, they were very loving parents, but it would have been nice if they were home a little bit more, you know, if they, they weren't uh, coming home sometimes seven, eight at night, and there was more consistency. 
Like I used to eat dinner at like right when I got home from school, like four o'clock. We didn't have like family dinners together because they got home too late. We have family dinners here every night. Like it's it's important to me and um, it's important to my wife. So every night we have family dinners here. And that's like that's something I won't, uh, you know, I won't sacrifice. Like I just it's, it's something that's really important. Do you have any pro tips on family dinners? Because we are like awful with that. And you have similar spread where you've got kids of all ages. So it's like we we have trouble keep captivating their attention and keeping them seated. Like uh, just oh well, that's part know? of it. I mean, like how do you do, how do you do we're, that? We're not what having is... formal family dinners here, Sean. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like by uh, rather than being seated, they're like jump, running in the other room to jump off the sofa and starting a fight. Um, so not not like I. I don't know anything about a formal dinner. I'm just. <laughs> well, I think that I think that's kind of part of it, though. Like that's we experience the same sort of thing, you know. But you know, we 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 try to we, you know, we'll say like, well, I guess you're not going to have dessert tonight or something, you know. There's always those little things you can do to say, you know, it's important to sit down and, and have dinner right now. Um, yeah. And you know, there are meals we'll we'll make like we're we're of the belief that you make one meal. You know, yeah. you don't you don't have to like one kid will want peanut butter and jam sandwich and one kid will want this. You don't. You, you gotta just make one meal for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you gotta make one meal, and uh, if they don't like it, then you, you know, hopefully they can eat something later on, or hopefully they'll get to it. I mean, they're not gonna want to starve, mm-hmm. that's for sure. They're gonna want to eat some of it, and and we try to find meals that everybody likes. Like that's important too. We're we're not trying to go off the board or anything. Um. So, you know, that's also important. Mm. Um, it's not easy. How many kids do you have? Three. I have three boys and three girls. You have six kids. Yeah. And you have time to be talking to me little, right now somehow. It's a little, little bit crazy. Yeah. I wow, married, six kids. My wife is like superwoman. Uh, she's also a stay-at-home mom. And um, yeah, she's she's a marathon runner. You know, like I'm a sprinter when it comes to working with the kids. Like I, I'm, I'm the same way. Play hard and fast. <laughs> and then, uh, but she's got the wisdom of like, you know, a, a steady pace. So what's your what's your age gap? Um, from 10, almost 11 down to, uh, just a few months. Jeez. You're doing human's work, my friend. Like that's, that's not easy. I'm done after three. <laughs> I thought I was done after two. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a uh, wisdom in that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> tell me, uh, as an adult, have you ever had an extended period of time where you were just running low on give a damn? And and if so, how did how are you able to get out of it? Yeah, um, it was probably when my second kid was born and uh, I just felt really down and out. I felt uh, I felt like I was in a fog. That's how I described it. I felt like I was in a fog. Um, and uh, I just started going going to therapy and doing martial arts like <laughs> it's it's not uh, not rocket science, but uh yeah, I started going to see a therapist every week. I'm not doing it anymore because I feel like I'm I've gotten through that kind of rough stage and things are going really well. Yeah. Um, and this was before I started covering martial arts, also, you know. So it was like uh, I wasn't as happy in my job as I am now. So uh, yeah, I mean that's basically the gist of it. Is like I just needed to do something to turn it around, right? Like I needed to find something that was going to make me uh, feel good about myself. So that's yeah. what I did, you know. And then. Uh, and then once we had the third kid, like the martial arts wasn't working anymore. But by then, I think I I I had kind of gotten through the rough part 
uh, I started doing this job and I just was like, I was loving it. And I was just, I, I was just so much more, you know, invigorated on a day-to-day basis. Um, mm. I feel like, I feel like going, I always tell people this. I f- feel like going from one kid to two kids was way harder than going from two kids to three kids. Totally. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of people that have more than two kids can relate to that. But going yep. from one to two is difficult because you're used to being able to just have one parent, one-on-one attention. And then one of us can go and do something that helps us kind of have downtime, take our mind off of things. And my wife and I have a really good understanding of each other where if one of us says like, hey, I've got to go lie down or I've got to go, like we're, we're okay to be like, no problem, I'll carry the load until like you feel a little bit better. Like we yeah. have kind of an understanding, which we didn't, I think during a part of our marriage, we we didn't really have that and i think that we've both kind of become more empathetic towards one another and been able to um kind of uh, vocalize that a little bit uh more effectively which is good that is really valuable i can i can relate to that on on all counts there where it's like like just the last four or five years we're kind of getting into a sweet spot where you you know get being married for eight or ten or twelve years you some of those little uh things whether it's communication or just perception knowing what the other person needs and and help taking care of each other um, for sure while, while managing a load of work and kids and everything else so um let's think talk about it so um on a at a period of time you had a um when you're kind of having a downtime martial arts and therapy was good also by the way i want to throw in like i think three of the last four or four of the last five guests have said therapy has been super helpful for them which uh, a little plug for therapy it's always a good thing a lot of a lot of great benefits there um, and also dudes never used to admit that they went to therapy like guys yeah. used to, there used to be a real stigma with going to therapy you know and i think that the more that people talk about that and you know i answer that very casually i just i went to therapy you know it's it's not a big deal and uh I think that people need to take the bravado out of it. And you hear mixed martial artists talk about it a lot too. A lot of them go to sports therapists and therapists and talk about how much it's helped them uh, grow in their profession, right? Like, so um, we need to stop looking at therapy as a thing, as a sign of weakness. I think that's kind of what people have done in the past. Um, mm-hmm. Michael Landsberg, who I've mentioned before, my mentor uh, in, in this business, he, he started something called sicknotweek.com. He suffered from depression for his for his like clinical depression and um he always says he's sick but he's not weak but you know like Mm. it's it's an like he has a mental mental illness like it's like if you had a cold right nobody would accuse you of being weak if you had a cold um and uh so he's his uh i guess it's a not-for-profit organization sicknotweek.com is all about just mental health advocacy and he does you know many speaking engagements every year where he talks to people about uh, depression and mental illness and you know therapy and and uh all of that so i i think that that's and and bell my the parent company that i work for does a an annual thing called bell let's talk day i'm sure you've seen it on social media where they give uh 10 cents for every interaction on twitter facebook uh or any phone call that you make on on the bell network they they give uh i think it's five cents um for each of those interactions and they've raised tens of millions of dollars for different mental health uh, charities and organizations. So it's something I'm very passionate about. I think that it's important that we uh, do remove the stigma of, of mental health uh, and mental yeah. stigma of mental illness rather uh, in that sense. For sure. Um, when you are feeling overwhelmed or on, you know, anxious or just generally having a bad day on a, like on an individual isolated day, um, what do you do to help get out of it? And any advice for others? 
Um, I meditate sometimes. Like meditation is really important. Um, I, or I listen to music. Um, those are the two things that really help me get out of a rut. Um, or just go out for a walk, clear my head. Mm. Um, you know, or I'll I'll go and and hit the century bag, and you know, just get get some energy going. Um, so they, those are a couple things that I've used, a couple tools. Uh, things different things work for different people. But, sure. Uh, yeah, that that's kind of what, what I like to do to kind of take my mind off of things, it just kind of redirect my energy to something else. And I think meditation is really important. People, um, it's so easy to do. Yeah. And it, it really helps you feel grounded in the moment. Uh, and it's five, ten minutes of your day, right? Like, it's not a big deal. You can, there are all kinds of apps that can help you with it. So uh, I would recommend what's, that. What's your, like, preferred routine when it comes to meditating? Cross my legs. Five to ten minutes breathing. That's Breathe. It. Yeah. Do you center on your your breathing? Like think about your breath as, and that's how you get into it. Yeah, I I either do that or I do big sky meditation, which is you picture a big sky, and whenever any like thoughts come into the big sky, you kind of like watch them kind of float away like a cloud. Ah. That's called big sky meditation. Yeah, I think it's called big sky meditation. So I use that tool quite a bit too because I I find that my mind often wanders when I when I meditate. So I try to either center on my breathing, like you mentioned, or I do big sky. Cool. I like that. All right. So uh, last few questions here. Uh, what is something you're looking forward to in the next 12 months? Um, well, we just got this new house and I'm, I'm looking forward to enjoying that and seeing how the different seasons here in, in Toronto go. Um, I'm looking forward to maybe a sense of normalcy being re- restored uh, in this world. That would be nice. But I'm not counting on that. Like, I think we need to um, let the medical community do their thing and, you know, not get impatient. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of it as if this could be going on for years rather than months. I think mm-hmm. it's important to realize that this is kind of our new normal for now. Um, but in terms of just things that I'm looking forward to in the next 12 months, yeah, I think it's just uh, just seeing how we grow into this new home. Uh, you know, that's it's kind of a simple thing and simple answer. But. That's uh, that's the gist. That's of a it. big deal, though, man. When you move, you got you know, it's it's a new place for you, for the kids. Everyone's kind of feeling out, and your the the space that you operate in definitely impacts your life. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that is an exciting change for sure. I've got a good I've got a good under a hundred dollar thing. Okay. I don't think I got it in the last year, but this we'll this, let it slide. We'll let it this, slide. This thing this thing saved. I wouldn't say saved my marriage, but it helped my marriage a lot. And it's, it's this is going to be the weirdest. Do you have a dog? No, I'm working on convincing my wife that getting a dog is a good idea. Well, with you have six kids, it's not a good idea. I'll just tell you that. But, um, <laughs> so we had a dog before we had kids, and our dog's still alive. She's like 12, almost 12 years old. But uh, she, when we used to um, leave the house, she used to get into the baby's garbage and eat diapers and, like, leave diapers on the floor, like dirty diapers. And we'd have to, like, clean our carpets and stuff. And uh, I I'm found a gonna, garbage I'm gonna, can. I'm going to encourage my wife to not listen to this uh, episode because then oh. she'll never want to get the dog. Well, I, I, I found a garbage can. It's by a company called Simple Human. And uh, it's a garbage can where, like, you step on on the pedal in the front and it opens, like, this way, like, uh, like outwards. And my dog has never been able to get diapers out of it. And it, it would cost, like, $70. But it's, like, one of the greatest purchases I've ever made was this one gar- – this garbage can saved us from so much stress in our lives – that like we used to like every I'd say twice a week the dog would get into the garbage somehow, and my wife would scream. I'd hear her from from upstairs screaming like, "Hey, Aaron, what are you? Get the dog out of the 
Getting this oh, garbage sure. can completely got rid of that entire like twice a week of like just chaos in our house. Oh, because man. when you have two kids already, two like when you have young kids, any little thing can set things off the rail in a hurry. You know this as someone who has six kids. Any little anything that you're not expecting can yeah. can throw things off the rail in a in a hurry. And having a dog when you have three kids, like you expect the dog to just kind of like be good. <laughs> Like, take it for walks, you feed it, and you hope that it doesn't get into trouble like it shouldn't. It's an older dog. But this dog would always find a way to get into the diapers. And this mm-hmm. one garbage for like 70 bucks changed my life. What And what's it called for anyone who's interested in it's, finding it's, it? It's the Simple Human. It's called Simple Human. Simple it's human. the brand. It's a Simple Human garbage can. And if you look up like Simple Human and like dogs getting into diapers, you'll find the model number. Like this is something mm-hmm. that came recommended. I found it on like a forum or something. But uh, yeah, this this thing saved my life. Nice. Not literally, but it, it helped yeah, my marriage. Yeah. It helped my marriage profusely. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's that's with no no um you know no hyperbole whatsoever. Sure. Now you mentioned sick not weak and uh, a couple other good causes out there. Is there um, any any other good causes that you wish uh, people more people knew about or uh, were supporting? I think that's kind of an individual thing. Like I think that if you can find something that you're passionate about, like we we, we donate monthly to a, a charity called War Child, which is uh, it helps get children that are recruited to like fight for for like armies, like you know militant armies and things like that and helps get them you know out of bad situations and rehabilitates them like that's that's just one charity that we we donate to on a monthly basis but uh you know i i i feel like people can find different charities that they can relate to and i think you know giving is important it's important to give back um you know when i see that on my credit card statement every month um i don't think of it as as oh we spent money on this i think of it as like you know, just every month we're we're thinking about more than just ourselves. Um, and you know, we've started to um, only buy uh, fair trade uh, chocolate or UTZ certified chocolate because uh, one of the um, biggest um, industries for child slavery is chocolate, is cocoa. Wow. And a lot of people don't really know about that. So, uh, you know, my wife did some research. It, it was, um, you know, my wife's not Jewish, but I'm Jewish, and we, we celebrate Passover every year. And Passover is uh, about, a lot of it is about being freed from slavery. But yeah. we take time during Passover to talk about how um, there's still slavery in the world today. So we, you know, my wife started doing some research and found that chocolate, like she loves chocolate, right? Like that cocoa is uh, one of the, um, you know, is, is has a, a long history of, of child slavery involved so it's more just about thinking about about other people and um and trying to you know when you when you make a purchase try to be more informed about it like that's i don't know if that's necessarily a cause but it's it's just more about being an advocate for other people and i think that's yeah. that's what's uh what is that's all about so what should somebody look for when they're if they're gonna buy chocolate um is it you said there's a ter- certain type of certification yeah, so there's Cocoa Life, there's uh, Fair Trade, and there's uh, UTZ certified. And so it's UTZ for anyone who's not UTZ. Familiar, yeah, UT, UTZ certified, right? Yeah, um, and there are a, a lot of different a lot of different chocolates that I know they just started making uh, Kit Kat bars. At least in Canada, are now using uh, either Cocoa Life or UTZ certified chocolate. 
I think that I think that somehow like a bit of a movement's been started for that, and um, I think it's I think it's uh, whoever makes Kit Kat, and uh, I know Cadbury Dairy Dairy Milk I believe is also UTZ certified or Coco Life. So it's just you just look for the certification on it. Yeah, but it's hard to find. It's harder than you think in terms of uh of of finding good chocolate, right? And if it's organic, typically it's it's uh got you know it's it's from good um. Good places as well. Good. Aaron, is there anything else we should talk about or that we haven't covered? Well, that's for you to decide, Sean. This is your show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think uh, we've got a pretty wide-ranging interview and uh, got to learn a little about your profession and area of expertise as well as your profile. So um, I want to thank you for for coming on. I've enjoyed it, had a good time, and, and a lot of good wisdom included in there. So um, if you would, before you go, let us know, um, for those who are interested in following you and, and, uh, seeing your articles and videos, um, where can people find you? Sure. It's uh, Aaron Bronstetter on Twitter. Uh, that's A-A-R-O-N-B-R-O-N-S-T-E-T-E-R. It's a bit of a mouthful. I hate saying it on the phone to people because I always have to be like T like Tom and all that. But, uh, uh, yeah, so that's, that's my Twitter handle. And, um, you can check out my podcast, the TSN MMA show and go to a TSN.ca slash UFC for our, all of our UFC coverage. And uh, this is a great show, Sean. I'm, I'm glad that you're doing this and, uh, and helping uh, people like myself talk about fatherhood. You know, a lot of people just know me as a guy who covers MMA. So it's, it's always nice to be able to share other parts of my life with, uh, with anybody who might be listening to this. Yeah, man. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, please consider telling someone about the podcast. You could talk to someone or send a text message. You could even fold them a sweet origami swan that has dad conversations written inside it. Or you could share an episode on social media, maybe even write a review of the podcast on your podcasting app. If you think the podcast sucks, that's totally cool. And I want to know why. Please send me any constructive criticism, such as a new question you'd like me to ask or a request to stop saying um. Also, feel free to send unconstructive hate mail or whatever's on your mind. You can find me at Sean Radvansky on LinkedIn or DM Dad Conversations on Twitter. Whatever you do, I hope you have a great day.